Everybody doing well? Come on, look outside right now. Is this amazing? It's awesome, isn't it? Resurrection, just everything coming to life. Who stayed up late last night? Anybody? Who watched a fight? Raise your hand, confess. <laughs> I had intentions to watch the fight, but my wife uh, greeted me yesterday morning with happy 23rd wedding anniversary. It's May, isn't it? I can't believe it. I thought it was April, okay? Just kind of May 2 snuck up on me. All right, we're ready to dive into God's Word, aren't we? Luke chapter 13. For those of you who did watch that fight last night or had a... I know. With that sense of anticipation, but even more, let's stand because God's going to speak to us. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans. Who are the Galileans? Anybody know? They're Jews, they're Jews who live in Galilee. They're different than Judean Jews. Um, I don't have time to go into all that, but there's a big difference between a Galilean Jew and a, and, and a Judean Jew. Um, it's kind of the difference between old money and new money. A little bit like the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic. Different region. Jesus told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they'd suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but, it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on the fig tree. I haven't found anything. So cut it down. Why should we use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Please, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year great. If not, then cut it down. This is God's word. Uh, You can be seated. Okay, so right now I'm faced with a little dilemma. Um, This thing makes all kinds of noise when I walk on it, and it's, it's a distraction to me. It could be a distraction to you. Do you hear that? So what do I do? Huh? I mean, just keep going? Okay. All right, we're in this this long teaching segment by Jesus. In fact, if you have a red-letter Bible, this entire section is practically red. And uh, he's he's teaching a crowd of thousands because he's he's reached this rock star status. I mean, people are literally trampling over each other to, to get close to him. And in this teaching section, sometimes he's teaching the crowds, 
Sometimes he's teaching his disciples because even the disciples sometimes ask, Jesus, are you talking to us now or are you talking to them? And Dan Mike got it right last week. So fun to see this. The main thing that Jesus is hitting here is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. When people pretend to be something that they're not. And this is especially dangerous for religious people. So Jesus is kind of cranking away teaching, and then someone simply makes mention of this, this tragic current event. It would be maybe like if someone right now, as I'm teaching, would just kind of yell out, Hey, Rod, what do you think of the events in Baltimore this week? Jesus, what do you think about what happened to those Galileans? Jesus takes this question and steers it even into more muddy waters. By asking this question, he takes this event to ask this question. Did those people tragically die because they were worse sinners than others? In other words, do do bad things happen to us because we're bad or worse than? Or another way to ask it is, do good things happen to us because we're good or better than? Or still another way to ask it, do we get what we deserve? This is an important question. Because it tells us a lot about what we believe about God, what we believe about the world, what we believe about suffering, what we believe about ourselves. Because especially in times of tragedy, when we hurt, when we suffer, we can't help but want to know why. Why did this happen? Why is this happening to me? And we want to know, like, did we play a role in this? Or what's God's role in all of this? Like, who's responsible? Now, if this example isn't enough, Jesus pushes this even further, and he adds a second. Um, Look at what he says in verse (laughs) 2. What about those 18 people who died when a tower collapsed on them? Ooh. Tower collapsed. For Americans, that one hits home, doesn't it? I mean, we can't read this the same after 9-11. I remember when we first moved here about 11 years ago, and it was a year or two after 9-11 happened, and uh, Gabe made a good friend with, with this kid named Liam, and Liam just moved from, from New York City and Gabe asked him why he moved, and he said, that whole thing was so traumatic, of watching those two towers uh, collapse, that our whole family had to move. Why do those things happen? Why the earthquakes in Nepal this weekend? Uh, why the accidents, the car accidents? Why the cancer? Why does stuff happen? That's what Jesus is pushing into. And I want to see how gutsy Jesus is, because even that detail, Galileans, Jesus is teaching in Galilee to thousands of people 
there are probably family members and friends of those victims who are filling his crowd. And Jesus takes this painful tragedy to talk about one of life's most difficult questions, why? Have you asked that question? Do bad things happen to us because we're bad? Do good things happen to us because we're good? Because here's what I've noticed about the human heart. The human heart loves to take credit. If we're successful in any way, uh, successful in a sport, successful in a career, uh, successful in a job, we, we, we like to take credit. If we're successful in school, we like to take credit. If we're successful in our relationships, we like to think that that's because of of ourself. Our heart's just quick to say, I did that. I'm responsible for that. And then, without even really thinking about it, we, we, we quickly start to think that we're better and, and, and that those people are, are, are worse. And that we have what we have and that we are what we are because we deserve it. That's my human heart. And conversely then, when bad things happen to us, when we lose or if we fall down or something falls apart, we can't help but wonder, boy, did I do something wrong? Am am, am I guilty? Am, Am I worse than other people? Is God punish me for something I just did? I mean, why do we even ask this question? Why do bad things happen to good people? Think about the premise behind that question. The the premise is, is that good people are owed a good life. Or how about the way the psalmist asks it in Psalm 73? Why do the wicked prosper? The same premise is behind that, that the wicked deserve a bad life. And I'll tell you the people who really wrestle with this question of why. It's people who want to take credit for their life. And I've found that the people that most want to take credit for their life um, are religious people. Spiritual people. Because underneath, oftentimes, the, the, the good behavior or the spirituality or all the religious activity is a heart that wants to control Life or a heart that wants to believe it's in control. If I'm good, then good will happen to me. If I'm bad, then bad will happen to me. If I pray enough or give enough or fast enough or behave well enough, I, 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 it's all about me. Hey, this is not to take sin or righteousness out of the equation because the Bible says God will not be mocked and a man will sow whatever he reaps. Some, something we like to say around here, choose to sin, choose to suffer. But here's the deal. Not all suffering is the result of personal sin. And why do the wicked prosper? And even furthermore, if, if the motivation be, behind our goodness and our spirituality is simply to gain leverage uh, with God so that we can somehow use that almost as a weapon against God to control our lives. Hey God, look at me. Look how good I am. You owe me. I deserve a good life. I'm a good person. 
Think about it. When we start thinking this way, is, is God serving us or are we serving God? Is God the one who is in control or are we just using our goodness and our spirituality as, as a form of leverage, as, as like capital to control God? And let me just ask some personal questions right now. Do you think you deserve anything right now? What do you deserve? Do you ever look at anyone and think you're better than them? See, this is precisely why Jesus could look at the most spiritual and moral people of his day and say, you hypocrite. You're pretenders. I mean, read the Sermon on the Mount this week because there especially Jesus just calls these hypocrites out. He says, when you give and when you pray and when you fast, and he takes all of their spiritual uh, activity, their, their, their religiosity, and he says, you're not doing this because you love God. You're doing this because you love yourself. You're using all of this spiritual activity as spiritual capital to control God, to promote yourself, to exalt yourself, because in the end you love yourself. And this is also why Jesus begins that sermon with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who look at themselves as spiritually bankrupt before God with nothing to offer. And Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Jesus in today's text is pushing into the same area. Bad things don't just happen because people are bad or worse than or more guilty. We can't look at life this way. We can't start playing this game and just thinking that bad people deserve a bad life and that good people deserve a good life. Here's the deal. Life will eventually punch holes in that kind of thinking. Whether it's an illness or a wayward child or a tragedy, a painful storm at some point will hit, and when it does, if we're left asking this question... Why do bad things happen to a good person like me? That question alone exposes the pride in our hearts. I don't care how good or bad you think you are today. We are not getting what we deserve. We have no idea how much right now We are under the grace of God. We all deserve a tower to fall on us. All of us. And that's too strong for you. That's what Jesus is saying in the second part here when he says, repent or you too will perish. That's what we deserve. But Jesus says, repent. Do you understand the importance of repentance today? Repentance is at the heart of Jesus' message. Everywhere he goes, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven. And with it, he says, repent. 
And of course, the kingdom of heaven is, is the good news that God's reign is breaking into our world, that's breaking into our lives to bring his perfect shalom to our chaos. And the way God's kingdom and his reign and his rule break into our life is through repentance. Now, one of the things that I've noticed that's been just kind of been discussed even around crossroads more um, is that Christians don't need to repent. I'm like, what? We don't have to repent? No, we don't have to repent. We're in Christ. We're saints. Am I the only one that's hearing this? Because re- repentance really begins, it begins with confession. It, it, it's this authentic recognition of sin in our lives. In fact, confession literally means to come into agreement with God. It's to see myself, to see my actions, to even go below my actions and see my motivations the way God sees them. But for us to say because we're in Christ, we no longer sin. We're not sinners, we're saints. Listen, a proud heart might find that delightful, but it's heresy. Because of Jesus, we are saints. In fact, because of Jesus, we are hidden in him. We're, we're, we're filled with him. We have the Christ in us, the hope of glory. And, and yes, Christ once and for all, he paid for sin, past, present, and future, meaning that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you. That causes my heart to dance. But still, in light of that, the fact is, I still sin. My heart sins. Jesus said all sin comes from the heart. Paul says in one of the last letters he writes, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. Am, not I was. I am the worst. And in just two chapters from now, uh, in Luke chapter 15, we're going to read this incredible parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the prodigal, which to me is probably the most profound picture of repentance in the Bible. It's when this younger brother who acknowledges the depth and breadth of his sin with these words, I am not worthy. Not worthy. When's the last time you uh, you prayed that? When's the last time you wept that, cried that? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Are you a person today that can acknowledge your sin? Can you, like the younger brother, say? I am not worthy to be called your son. And that's the first step into repentance. But repentance isn't just just coming to this recognition. It's also, once we come to this recognition, it's it's turning from from the sin. It's turning from the life of sin. In Hebrew, the word repentance is the Hebrew word teshuvah. Shuvah means simply to turn, or better yet, to return. 
And again, without getting ahead of ourselves, nothing paints a better picture of repentance than the parable of the prodigal son. Because that younger brother, uh, it says, he finally comes to his senses. He recognizes his sin, that he has sought the wrong things, that his life is in the absolute wrong place because he's away from home. He's lived away in rebellion to his father. And it says... And he got up and he returned. He returned home. He returned to his father. Because this is what repentance is. It's, it's, it's leaving our sin and it's returning to our heavenly father, to our heart's true home. With, with, with this whole idea that as we do it, we are not worthy. We are not worthy. We're not worthy to be called his son. And that's why it's a very humbling, almost humiliating thing to do is to repent. Martin Luther set up the whole Reformation when he uh, nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. That Reformation really was the spark to revival in the church. Do you know what the first of those 95 theses were? What it said. First theses. That he nailed to the door. All of life is repentance. If my people who are called by my, by, by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their sin and turn towards me. Every revival that ever occurred is because people repented. Jesus to the churches in Revelation, to Laodicea, he says, repent. He's talking there to Christians, to, to the church in Ephesus, he says, repent. To the church in Thyatira, he says, repent. Because repentance is not a one-time thing. Luther is right. All of life is repentance. Because even though we are in him and his actual spirit, the spirit of Christ is in us. As John Calvin said, our hearts are still like idol factories. So quickly can the human heart turn anything into an idol. And what's an idol? An idol is anything that we turn to for our worth and our significance other than God. It's our heart finding satisfaction and, and meaning outside of God. We can do this with a job. We can do this with a sport. We can do this with a relationship. We can do this with a pleasure. We can make an idol out of our stuff. We can make an idol out of our appearance. We can make an idol out of achievement. We can make an idol out of good things like our reputation. We can make an idol out of our ministry. We can make an idol out of preaching sermons. Our hearts are prone to idolatry. And I think our hearts are most prone to idolatry. It's not when towers are falling on us, but it's when our lives are good, when we're living good, when life is easy and comfortable. I mean, we see this in the biblical story. We see this in God's people. We see that late in their history, when they forsook God and their, their lives are filled with idolatry, God comes to them and says, in Hosea, he says, Israel, do you remember that time when we were lovers? How in the desert, how in that tough, barren place. It was there that you loved me. 
and sought me with all your heart. That God even warns them in Deuteronomy 8, right before they're about to go into the promised land, he says, you're leaving this, this place where it's hard and it's, it's a wasteland. Uh, for, for, for a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God says, be careful. You're going to enjoy that prosperity. Life is going to be good. The land's going to be good. But be careful because when you get there, you're going to start taking credit for everything. You're going to say, I did this. And you're going to forget me. It's especially when times are good, when we're living good. We need to repent. We need to repent. I want to be part of a church that takes sin seriously. That has the courage to look at it. Not out there in the world. But right in here. And here. And to repent, to acknowledge it, and turn from it. I thank God for the deserts in my life. I thank God for the desert in my marriage. I thank God for the desert, the deserts we've experienced in parenting, the deserts we've experienced here at Crossroads. Um, I'll tell you what, through the desert, I know what I deserve. I know what God owes me. Anything outside of hell is a grace of God in my life. And the reason why we can repent is, is not because we're so good, but it's because God is so good. It's because of his grace. I, I love the parable that Jesus tells right after this um, in our text today. It's a parable of a vineyard. In fact, the Bible over and over again refers to God's people as the vineyard that God has planted because God wants us to be this garden that reflects his beauty and brings his rich, organic growth and life to the world. We've been blessed to blessed. We've been redeemed to redeem. We've been filled with the presence of God to unleash that presence everywhere. Now, the fig tree that's, that's planted in God's vineyard represents, I think, the generation that Jesus is speaking to. And it says, for three years, the owner says, for three years, I come to this fig tree looking for fruit. What's the fruit? The fruit is the fruit of repentance. And the three years still speak to God's grace. For three years, God is patient with this tree. He comes to this tree, but there's still no fruit. There's no turning. There's no repentance. So the owner then says, well, I'm just going to cut this tree down. But there's a gardener. This gardener who, who, who cares for the vineyard, he says, wait, would you please spare it? Sir, for one more year, would you give it another chance? And I will dig around it and fertilize it. What is this gardener doing? Reminds me of Abraham, how Abraham stood in the gap on behalf of wicked Sodom, on whom God was about to bring destruction. God said, please, no, no. It reminds me of Abraham, who stood in the gap on on behalf of uh, wicked and rebellious Israel. and, and, And Moses said, take my life. 
So who's the gardener? <laughs> well, one way to look at this is, is easy. The gardener is Jesus. In fact, just a few verses later from this, he's going to look at Israel and he's going to say, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. Oh, how I long to just gather you in my arms like a mother hen does her chicks. But I think even a more appropriate way to look at this is to see the owner and the gardener as representing these two sides of God. God's perfect justice and his merciful grace. Because Jesus came to the world to show us the face of the Father. And God, our Father, is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. But he's also perfectly just. And he will not let the guilty go unpunished. And this is the God that we see throughout the Bible. And as we read the biblical story, uh, this tension arises. How can a perfectly just God, uh, how is he going to be merciful? And how can a merciful God act justly? Can God be both simultaneously, both perfectly just and gracious? And Jesus came to that to this world for that very purpose. To simultaneously show us the perfect justice of God and the amazing grace of God all rolled in one. Because whether you know this or not today, we all deserve a tower to fall on us. Our guilt demands that our, that our blood be spilled. And the gospel is that Jesus came to the world and he took our tower. The ultimate tower of God's justice. It fell on him. He stood in our place. He took that falling tower. His blood was spilled by Pilate to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices because it's his blood that washes us and it cleanses us and it atones us for our sin so that when you and I repent, all the dead things in us come to life. Think about that. When we repent... All the stains and the dirt are made clean. When we repent, our sin is atoned for. I want you to look at this right now. (laughs) There, simultaneously, is the justice of God. And the grace of God. Can you see that? The justice of God is that every sin must be paid for. The mercy of God is that Jesus paid it all. And what Martin Luther also said, he said, the cross screams at us. It's this Latin phrase, simul isustus et Pacator. It's a Latin phrase that means simultaneously we are accepted and a sinner. (laughs) Simultaneously there is the grace 
and perfect justice of God. And what that says to me, says Luther, is simultaneously, it says, I am that sinful that the God of the universe had to do that to save me. But I'm that accepted. That's the love of the Father. That's the Father running off the porch, embracing us, kissing us, accepting us, welcoming us home. And that phrase, I just sent this to my son. Because he's so bound up with trying to perfect himself. And he feels like he's letting everybody down when he can't do it. I said, son, relax. You're a sinner. Accepted by God. Not because you're so good. Because he's so good. That's the penny that has to drop. It's the gospel. And think about it. The God of the universe owes us nothing, but he gave us everything. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why. That's why he gave it all. He loves us. And see, when we, when we lived this loved, we don't have to live anxious anymore. We don't have to live restless anymore. We don't have to live our lives just proving to ourselves and to the world that we're only saints. We can repent. Because only sinners repent. Sinners. People who can say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But people also at that same moment experience the love and the acceptance of God. So today, church, let's repent. I don't know what God's spirit is putting his finger on right now. I, 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 I know that Jesus gave us a meal. And with this meal, he says, let a person examine themselves. And the reason why we can literally examine ourselves, and that's not just the periphery, that's our heart. We can examine our hearts. We can look all the way to the bottom of who we are and to all the nooks and crannies. Why? Because of that right there. Simultaneously, a sinner yet accepted. We can pray like David prayed. Search my heart, oh God. Try me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Oh, that we'd have the guts today to confess our sin. Acknowledge it and turn from it. Lest we perish. Let's pray. God, even as I stand before this mikvah bowl full of water, which we do around here as a symbol of our repentance, thank you, God, for, for the cross. That allows my heart to acknowledge the sin of my hands and the sin of my feet. 
and the sin of my mind and thoughts and the sin of my heart. God, give me the grace to repent, to repent 